Well, good morning again. If you would please turn open in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9. Just at the, the outset before we uh, open up God's Word with chapter 9, this is probably the toughest chapter, one of the toughest chapters in the entire Bible. And we'll get into it. I think it sometimes stirs more questions than it does give answers, and we look to the Scriptures to give us answers and solve things and Sometimes we're left saying, God is God, I am not, but I trust him. And uh, this has been, a, just in, in, even in my preparation this week, it's been, it's just, I have felt a seriousness about this chapter, a seriousness about um, God's judgment, because that's what this chapter is about, as, we, as the, the fifth and sixth trumpets are blown if you're visiting with us, um, we, we've been working through the book of Revelation and we are picking up, so you're picking up with us kind of midstream. So if you, uh, maybe you've already listened online, but if there's more that you want to go listen to, please, you can find us online or we can help you find those online. But let's ask the Lord for illumination as we uh, open his word. Lord, help us. Holy Spirit, give us your illumination and accomplish your work in our hearts. Revelation 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and the shaft rose, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like the horses prepared for battle. On their heads were like what heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces and their hair like women's hair. And their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpion, scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek his name is Apollyon. First woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. 
So, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. But these three plagues, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like, the ser- are like serpents with heads By means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This chapter helps us And it reminds us to take God very seriously. It's a tough chapter. And it's hard to imagine the terror that will be unleashed when the angels blow the fifth and sixth trumpets. And this stuff messes with our concept of God's love. If God was loving, why would he even let any of this happen? Why why give this description at all? I think the, the center of our struggle is in our inability to understand God's holiness. And for unbelievers, it's a refusal to understand God's holiness. But even for believers, we struggle to think how holy God is. He's completely other than us. He's completely God. His holiness requires his righteous response to sin and rebellion. His righteous and furious response to sin is what we call his wrath. It's God's wrath. Now, God's wrath is not part of his nature like his love, his holiness, and his justice are. So we do, God is not wrath. Like God is love. We can't say God is wrath. No, his, he is holy and he is just. And by his character, he must respond to sin. That's called his wrath. So he's not, he's not some off-the-handle God that needs to be placated and eased by a son who comes along named Jesus. Like, come on, Dad, it's going to be okay. Like, everybody has this concept. Well, it's easy to have a concept of the Old Testament God just being off-the-handle, raging against people. Jesus comes and eases him so everybody can get along. It's not, you know, we, we have a God of love in the Old Testament. And we have a God of fury and wrath in the New Testament. It's not just the opposite. It's both. He's he's both of these. He will, in his holy character, respond to sin and sinners. Um, Our men's study on Wednesday mornings is going through the book of Romans. We're just in the second week. And guys, Wednesday's 6 a.m., if that's something you like to be part of please uh, we can we can get you set up with a book to come prepared but uh, I, I kept this quote in there we spent time on this quote and discussing it by John Stott and his, his uh, commentary on Romans he says this human anger although there is such a thing as righteous indignation is mostly very unrighteous 
It is an irrational and uncontrollable emotional emotion containing much vanity, animosity, malice, and the desire for revenge. It should go without saying that God's anger is absolutely free of all such poisonous ingredients. The wrath of God is almost totally different from human anger. It does not mean that God loses his temper, flies into a rage, or is ever malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. That's important for us to think about. Because listen, sometimes we feel like he's been being vindictive. In moments in your life where you feel like, God, you set me up, and this is not good. He's not being vindictive. He's working his will to get us more to see Jesus and be like Jesus. Pick it up in the quote. The alternative to wrath is not love, but neutrality and moral conflict. This is where we talked about. The, the, the world says, if God is so... God, stop being so wrathful. Just love everybody. Instead of God is love, let's love is love. Let's just all get along. But we don't realize, because we don't understand God's holiness, that he's not... He, he doesn't over... If, if you're angry at somebody, you're not told to love. You're told to, one, repent of your anger, but understand why you're angry, because there's something deeper going on. But look, the answer to wrath is not love, but neutrality in moral conflict. I just don't care. And listen, God is not neutral. We, we just think, and the culture says, look, if it's not hurting you, just don't care about it. God cannot act like that. He cannot do that. Contrary to his nature. On the contrary, his wrath is his holy hostility to evil, his refusal to condone it or come to terms with it, his just judgment upon it. God is serious about sin and God detests sin. If God, like we, we just, can you just sweep things under the rug, God? Can you do that? If God swept things under the rug and ignored sin and rebellion and pride, he would contradict his holy character, thus making him not God. Something else would be more moral than God. There's a new atheism that has been infiltrating past probably 20 years or so. Atheists believe they are more moral than God. Because they look at, they look at the scriptures and they think, Psh, I wouldn't do it like that. So therefore, I'm more moral than God. No, everybody's trying to ignore stuff. God does not overlook sin. So as believers, does he, when we sin, does he overlook it? No, you know what he does? He looks back at what he did to his son to relate to us with love and mercy and grace. And he can give the promise where there's sin, there's now an overabundance of grace. Because he looks at what Jesus did for us. So when God sees us, even in the failures and, and the knucklehead things that we do constantly, he's not, it's not like he's withholding, like, all right, better do it right because I'm holding my wrath back. No, he said, I already poured it out on Jesus. So now it's paid for. You have forgiveness. Let's walk in grace. The two trumpets that are blown in this chapter describe God's wrath on sin and sinners unless they repent. God is warning the earth throughout all ages so they will repent and be saved from his ultimate final wrath. And the tool that he uses to warn them of evil is evil itself. That's what makes our head spin. How can God use something, how can God use something that he hates to bring about repentance in others? So here's our, our big caption for today. The serious reality of God's judgment upon evil. 
should cause the faithful to be comforted by their escape from wrath as well as grieved at the state of unbelievers who still stand under his condemnation. Two things. One, we're comforted. If we're in Christ, we're comforted. We don't have to experience that. We're all, we also should be grieved that there are those that still face this condemnation unless they repent. So let's look at the fifth trumpet. The fifth trumpet is blown and a star fallen from heaven. I believe this is Satan himself being described. And God is giving Satan, remember, Jesus holds the key to death and Hades, we learn in chapter 1, verse 18. He's giving Satan a key to the bottomless pit. In essence, he's letting Satan use hell to bring it to earth to try to destroy the work of God and prevent people from ever receiving Christ. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 10, 18, that he saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And we learn from Ezekiel 28 that there's, it's a prophecy about the king of Tyre, but it, 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 many theologians think that that's a description of Jesus before he fell, but pride was found in him and God cast him out of heaven to the earth. And the smoke from hell, this bottomless pit is hell itself, and smoke is rising up. And the smoke is so, so thick, it's clouding all of the light around. I think this is a reference to spiritual darkness that infiltrates the earth. And darkening understanding of God, darkening understanding of right and wrong, we, to the point that people look at, and it, it, we feel the the effects beginning to take shape now. You look at something that's wrong, people call it right. People look at something that's right, and then that's wrong. But this is an increase of confusion and chaos, and people will look to knowledge. People will look to knowledge to try to get your attention, keep you awake. People will look to knowledge as the escape or knowledge as the key. But it's just more struggle. More suffering, more confusion, more chaos. And, and then from the smoke, locusts come. With the power of scorpions, I think this describes the demons from hell. So Satan is given permission. Remember, John, uh, Martin Luther said that uh, Satan, the devil is God's devil. He can't do anything without God's permission. But the fact that God gives the devil permission to work this kind of stuff, that's hard. But he uses, he's really, he's using what people want as the desire to get them to repent. But we have a promise in there. A promise for the people of God, verse 4. Here these locusts are given permission. But look, locusts eat grass. They eat crops. They eat green plants and trees. But he says, don't eat those. Where do the locusts go? Only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, if we have the seal of God, remember we said that's not a physical seal on our foreheads, it's character. It's us, us becoming more and more like Christ because of the presence of the Spirit in us. Those with the mark known by Christ are spared from the dark demonic forces. It doesn't mean that we're not tempted to give in to ideologies or give in to ways of thought in the confusion and the chaos of the spiritual darkness and intellectual darkness that happens. We've got to still pursue the Lord. But there's preservation for the people of God. But when these demons are given power over people, what is it? The earth is not to be touched by the locust, but people can be touched. I think this is pointing to a, a physical 
a torment of physical and mental anguish. God gives people over to what they think they want. Here's what everybody thinks they want, a world without God. He gives it to them. In Romans 1, 24, uh, we read that, that God gives people over to a fruitless mind, a depraved mind. And people rebellious against God. God, just get out of my way. You're not good for me. I know what's best for me. God says, oh yeah, let's try that. And then the whole created order gets messed up and turned around. That's why we have people today born a particular way and mad at God that they were born that way because they're not that way. Look, and all, all the desire for the culture to find identity through whatever... Uh, and look, I, I believe that any, any relationship other than husband and wife, as God has designed it, is perversion on God's created order. So to pursue the perversion doesn't increase our identity. It erases our identity. And so now there's this push about cisgender and pronouns. And look, it's weird to refer to one person as they. But culture says if you think that's weird, you're the one that's weird. No, wait. What you're doing is you're erasing who you are because you don't think God made you the right person. Look, people do that with their physical uh, body, but look, we can do that with our minds. God, you didn't create me with the right mind, or you didn't create me to behave the right way. So we find ways to be mad at God. We, the rebellion lingers and it stirs within us. And if we're not careful, we'll give in to its thought. But God wants to preserve and keep our identity while, listen, culture's running from identity. They're not running toward it. The whole, the whole masking of find out who you are, just look deep within and be who you are, that self-expression thing, we're erasing identity. And the people of God need to be able to walk humbly, need to be able to walk in love, but as lights in the midst of darkness. Look, it is weird when, it's weird to the world when husbands and wives get along and are happy. It's weird. And we should be the happiest on the earth, in our relationships, in our husband-wife relationships, in our parenting relationships, in our friendships. We should be the happiest people, most joyful people on the earth because that's the light that draws. My wife is so good at connecting with neighbors and uh, in our history of the streets that we've lived on, she will some usually get a question like, you and your husband must be from another planet because you don't seem to have any problems. My wife says, no, no, no. We've got issues that we need to work through, absolutely. We're both sinners just trying to put on Jesus more and more. But what are they recognizing? I think they're recognizing joy and peace. Look, my wife will sometimes say when people ask her for something, well, let me check with my husband, let me check with Jeff, and we'll let you know. And they look at her like, what? Check with your husband? Do you think for yourself? Can you make your own decisions? Why? Because for a wife to submit to her husband, you're erasing your identity. No, 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 no. Maybe you're discovering an identity because that's what God's called us to. Now, submission is not give up your mind to be a doormat. That's not submission. Culture wants to make everybody think that's what submission is. That's not submission. A woman has a fierce femininity to say, you know what? I'm going to serve Jesus with everything that I am. And even if it means I stand in my husband's face and say, you're not loving God. That's submission, because you're submitted to Jesus. 
Now, the husband should be setting the example in submission. We hear that in Ephesians 5. As the husband submits to Christ, so the wife submits to the husband. As the church submits to Christ, husbands, I'm way off on a tangent. This is nowhere in my notes. But obviously, the Holy Spirit wanted us to know this today. Amen? So, take that, live it. (laughs) But it's a light. People look at us and they should see something different. They should not they should not see depraved minds. They should be together minds. Now so severe is this torment from the locusts that the people I, this is I struggle with this verse six. And in those days people will seek death and will not find it. Have you ever had a physical uh, ailment that you asked God to take you, like God just kill me? Because death in heaven would be much better than what I'm living through right now. And that death never comes. Think of living with that. They will look for death to escape the judgment of God that they're feeling, and they can't even get death. But there's still a limited effect to the locust. There's a limit to the destructive power. And anytime God says, look, I'm going to give you five months, that's what I'm going to give you. We don't know if that's a literal five months, figurative, not sure. That fifth trumpet hasn't been quite blown yet, I believe. But we, we have the stirrings of what it would feel like. That's why we can look back and say, this is going to be really, really bad. But anytime there's a limit to the destructive power of the demonic forces, we also have to recognize the mercy of God because he still wants to save people. He doesn't, close the, he doesn't, uh, uh, he doesn't turn the lights off on the world until every person that he wants to save is saved. And there's a limit to that. But we then see in uh, these tactics in verses 7 through 12, we see some tactics of spiritual warfare. There's the appearance of the locusts. And remember, these are mimicking God's army. We see this army in the, the four horsemen of Zechariah. Where I believe those four horsemen are going out salvifically. They're going to save. But now these appearance, God, the devil's always mimicking God. He's always trying to be God from the beginning, he's tried to be God and dethrone God, but he's going to look. He describe, remember, James says he disguises himself as an angel of light. He's not, he's not the red dude with the horns and the pitchfork. He's not a scary thing. He's actually something that is quite appealing. But now there's horses, and I think the horses can relate to strength. So he mimics strength. There's crowns of gold where the Satan is mimicking an authority or maybe an acclaim, a popularity. There's human faces. I think he's, he's pushing this humanism. Just focus on yourself. You don't need God. And they reveal the tactics of Satan to deceive. He is looking to deceive everybody and get their attention off of God, off of gospel truth. And there's a woman's hair. I think this is the tactic of his seduction. He's continuing coming after, uh, whether it's the church or the world, to to try to believe in something that's temporal, believe in something that's instant gratification rather than trust God for eternity. We have lion's teeth and iron breastplates and noisy wings, tails that sting. This is persecution, pressure to conform to a particular thing, whether it's a person or an ideology. And then then we hear that the power is in the tail. You know when something passes you, if the power's in the tail, and they're kind of like scorpions, so you don't see it coming. You interact with the front of the scorpion, you don't see the tail over it. But if something passes, you think, oh, you're seeing the tail end of something, it's gone. 
but then it stings. I think it's pointing to a false assurance. And false assurances are all over the place in culture as well in the church, in our relationship with God. We, we put our hopes in things that God says, don't put your hope there. But when we think something has passed, boom, it comes back and stings. And then we find in verse 11 who this king of destruction is, Satan himself. Remember in John 10, 10, he says, the, the, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life. And have it abundantly. I believe that's a direct reference to Satan himself. To steal, kill, and destroy. Hebrew, Abaddon. Destruction, Abaddon. Destruction. Satan is the ancient foe. Satan is the current foe. His Greek name, I believe, is a shot at Apollo. The Greek god Apollo. Which that means, word means destroyer. So you have destruction and destroyer. You know, the emperors, uh, the Roman emperors considered themselves descendants of Apollo. So he's pointing at them. He's pointing at these, these men who think they're God. But isn't that this, the sin of pride in every one of us? Men who think they're God? And we are alerted in verse 12, the first woe has passed. Remember, uh, trumpets 5, 6, and 7 are the three woes. The first woe has passed. Two woes are still to come. And then we have the sixth trumpet that's blown. And in the sixth trumpet, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar saying to the sixth angel, excuse me, who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. It is not a good day when God removes his restraint on people. He's holding things back or even on uh, spiritual forces. God removes his restraint. He's been holding that back. Listen, so more will get saved. But it's a very scary thing to think that God will say, all right, go. Like a, a, a rabid dog held by a leash that just can't wait to go. And that unleashing, it's terrorizing. And that's, that's what God does. And, and these angels who kill, they're demons. We see mounted troops. Twice 10,000 times 10,000, 200 million. That's a lot. 200 million troops for battle. I think this is a reference. The war in the heavens comes to the earth. This could mean a literal army that Satan assembles uh, from a nation or many nations. We don't know. But the, the locus of God's judgment, uh, we, we, this may, Joel, the locus that were. Uh, prophesied to come, ended up being another nation coming in to occupy uh, God's people, the land that God said, you're going to dwell here. So that's why this could be a reference to a physical army of 200 million troops. That's, that's a lot to stand up against. Horses and riders are there. There's physical warfare. These are plagues that people die from. They're literal plagues that are killing people. There's breastplates colored with fire, sapphire, and sulfur. If you think of fire, red, sapphire, blue, sulfur, yellow, red, blue, yellow. I think these colors, we, they usually represent things. These could mean aggression, red for aggression, and blue for false peace. Blue is supposed to be this sanguine and, and calming color. But if, if it's coming from demonic forces, it's a false peace. And yellow, a happy color. Maybe that's a false joy that's to be spread. These heads of lions. I think we see, we see a dominance that comes through fear. 
Lions just terrorize and the devil, the devil will come with his demons and he will just try to dominate everybody through fear. And then a third of the people on the earth are killed. Again, it's limited, but you know what? If we put this together with the sixth seal that I think will happen at the same time as the sixth trumpet that's blown, that means half the earth's population is dead. That's serious. We have mouths of fire, smoke, and sulfur. So what, what's imaged on the breastplate then comes from the mouths. That, that what's in the heart's going to come out. We have fire, smoke, and sulfur. This aggression, smoke, maybe confusion. This false joy, that yellow sulfur. These things that, that are, the devil deceives through this. But these are physical plagues. And then we see that the power of the horses in the heads and in the tails. So maybe the head can represent knowledge and intelligence. Maybe the tail represents that false assurance, that subtlety. Because that, remember, the tail is a serpent, like a serpent that will come and bite. These are huge events that await the earth. Now, we should be comforted because we, we, we are marked by God and have the Spirit of God inside of us. The, the devil can't touch us. Thank the Lord. But we should also be grieved. We should be grieved that there are so many that we know that are still under this condemnation. If God chooses to come now, this will happen. If he chooses to blow that fifth and sixth trumpet, this will happen. And we have just a sad reality in verses 20 and 21. that The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. Isn't that wild? It's a hard heart. It's hard hardness. It's still a limited destruction, but some will escape the plagues. But they don't repent of their idolatry. I mean, last week when we considered the beginning of the trumpets that are being sounded, they correlate with the plagues of Exodus. In, in Exodus, God was judging the gods. He was judging the Egyptians for their worship of false gods, their idols. God was judging their idolatry. He's doing the same in this chapter. He's judging idolatry. They don't repent. The works of their hands are giving up the worship, worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which can't see, hear, or walk. Nor did they repent of the murders, sorcery, sexual immorality, thefts. They do not repent of their idolatry. When God judges this idolatry, He's serious about it. Now, Romans 1, 24 and 25. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged, this is the problem with everybody on this planet, unless God saves us, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That's our struggle. Parents, that's the struggle of your kids. Their struggle is, do I believe God or do I go after something that looks more tantalizing, looks more promising? Because you know what? It's our struggle too. It's our struggle. But what's the antidote? What's, what's the saving grace? Believe God. Believe him and worship him and serve him. Don't serve the creature rather than the creator. 
So this should have a stirring effect in us, church, as we are comforted one and grieved at the condemnation that unbelievers sit under. This should also motivate us to flee idolatry. So there can be a proper understanding and light shown to the lost who are coming asking, how, how do you live? What's, what's the reason you have this peace? What's the reason you have this joy? Flee idolatry. Love God. Let's not go after false ideas and false promises that only give us an illusion of control rather than a faithful surrender that God calls us to. He calls us to, to, to faithful surrender every single day. And by his grace, he keeps us. He keeps us. He keeps us close to him. And he keeps us close to him in ways that reveal his healing touch over and over and over and over again. Let's pray. Lord, you want, you want us to know Revelation 9. And we see how serious you are about sin. And how serious you are about judging evil. And God, we ask that you would please save millions upon millions upon millions of people so they might avoid ultimate destruction, which really is death separated from you. So Lord, continue your work, but God, use us to do that, please. Lord, help us understand how we are, we're, we're going after uh, the soft, deceptive voice of Satan himself to pursue worship of idols to solve our security, to solve our peace. We look to things that we see to, to bring relief in our lives rather than trust you who is eternal and, and invisible. So God, free us from our desire for temporal security and rest that we might find our eternal rest and our eternal security in you. Draw us to yourself, God. May we be serious about what you're serious about, and that's our hearts. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, church. This is, this is sober for us, but we go. All authority is Jesus. He's got it all. And he wants to use us to spread his love, his truth, and the light of his truth. Let's just remind ourselves as we go. Therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. God bless you. Hey, in a few minutes, uh, we will have, we'll need some help to pick up chairs in the back. We're going to leave the first few rows and push those forward. So you'll see when we start bringing the dollies out. But thank you. God bless you. <laughs>